Hello, my name is Spencer Wright, and this is episode 17 of the Waltz Oasis podcast. On this show, I discuss animals and the people who helped create them from the world of Disney. Topics come from the world of animated and live action film, shorts, parks, documentaries, and more. Please follow the podcast on Instagram, on my personal page at SpencerWright19070, and the show page at Walt Oasis, where I'll post pictures of subjects discussed. And feel free to email me at waltoasis at gmail.com with any feedback, questions, or episode suggestions. Episode suggestions are always welcome. I will have two segments this week. The first on Dinky the Chimpanzee. And Dinky the Chimpanzee appeared in two live-action movies for Disney, the first being Lieutenant Robin Crusoe, USN, 1966, and Monkeys Go Home, released in 1967, both of which are fully live-action films. Dinky was born in 1957 and originally came from Sierra Leone in West Africa. He was owned by Stuart Raffle of Safari Animal Rentals in Thousand Oaks, California. Prior to Raffle meeting him, Dinky was a tightrope walker who was retired when his former owner felt he was too old for that kind of work. When Raffle needed a quick replacement on a film he was working on, Dinky was sent to him, and despite being mostly sedentary for a year, Raffle found that Dinky was extremely sharp and responsive to verbal commands. He recalled, quote, On our first meeting, I took Dinky out for a drive to get better acquainted. I noticed that every time we passed a restaurant or a Coke sign, he responded, often to the point of excitement. I finally pulled into a gas station and bought him a Coke. He drank it right down. It's still one of his favorite drinks, unquote. Dinky enjoyed the company of other animals at the compound where he lived, especially the other chimpanzees and a lion named Major, a leopard named Roger, a grizzly bear named Bali, and an elephant named Boom. Dinky was energetic and playful, known for enjoying coffee and raw eggs for breakfast, and enjoying pretty much all fruits and vegetables. Outside of these two Disney films, his career included several dozen roles on television shows like Lassie and Mr. Ed, as well as in television commercials. So I will first discuss Lieutenant Robin Crusoe, USN, USN meaning United States Navy. So Dinky starred in the film, which also featured Dick Van Dyke. It is a modern Robinson Crusoe story in which Van Dyke plays a Navy pilot who crashes into the ocean and floats to an uninhabited Pacific island. The story is told from the perspective of him writing to his fiancée a year later, recounting why he didn't show up for his wedding. The story involves a chimpanzee named Floyd, who's played by Dinky, an islander girl named Wednesday, played by Nancy Kwan, other islander women, fierce warriors, and an eventual escape in which both Lieutenant Robin Crusoe and Floyd escape. Floyd ended up on the island while he was traveling to space and overshot his mark, ending up on the tropical Pacific island. As cultural changes occurred in the 1960s, especially regarding what could be depicted on screen, Dick Van Dyke wanted to ensure he would only appear in movies his kids could see, not kids' movies, but movies the family could enjoy together. He only wanted to appear in projects he could discuss around the dinner table and would not make him feel ashamed when he walked into church. 
wrote in his memoir, quote, that kind of family-oriented, value-driven ethos earned the admiration of another Midwesterner, the Chicago-born Walt Disney, unquote. Walt read an interview about Dick's intentions to work in strictly family movies and initially signed him to work on Mary Poppins, which was released in 1964. And that's how he came to the Disney studio initially. A portion of Lieutenant Robin Crusoe was filmed on the Hawaiian island of Kauai in the spring of 1965, where Walt and his wife Lillian visited and stayed. Van Dyke remembered it as an especially good time due to a deep friendship he formed with Dinky. A jungle set was built down near the beach, and on the first morning of filming, Van Dyke walked onto the beach with a styrofoam cup of coffee in one hand and a cigarette in the other. Dinky was in his own director's chair, and he directed Van Dyke over with his finger, and Van Dyke said, Hello, how are you? Dinky grabbed the coffee and cigarette and indulged accordingly. Van Dyke said to the trainer, quote, He shouldn't smoke, and the trainer responded, Neither should you. After that, every morning, the pair started off the day together with a cigarette and cup of coffee. They also ate lunch together with Dinky using a napkin and utensils. And Van Dyke remembered that the monkey had impeccable manners and you know, everyone would often talk to Dinky as if he were a human. Dinky was known for his strong work ethic, working really under any conditions. One day he was sick and had a 103 degree fever and he would play his scenes and then the second cut was yelled, would then lay down and groan. In the press, he was reported to be three feet four inches tall and weigh 100 pounds. And he was highly complimented in the press for his performance, being almost human and clearly a consummate professional. Dinky, and this is common of animals in Disney films, was noted as a real scene stealer. And this was especially impressive as he was playing opposite Dick Van Dyke. Lieutenant Robinson Crusoe, U, Lieutenant Robin Crusoe, USN, released on July 29th, 1966, and was directed by Byron Paul, who was also Van Dyke's business partner. And Van Dyke described it as a silly Disney movie and pure family fun. Walt Disney received story credit as Ratlaw Yensid, his name spelled backwards. The movie was a financial success upon its release, likely due to the fact that Dick Van Dyke, who had huge star power at the time, was in the film, although it did receive lukewarm reviews. In subsequent years, it has not received positive reviews, with Leonard Moulton describing it as having, quote, virtually nothing of merit to recommend, unquote. And due to outdated cultural depictions, I do not foresee it ever being released on Disney+. It was re-released in 1974 and released on video in 1986. The next Disney movie Dinky appeared in was 1967's Monkeys Go Home, and this is based on a book by G.K. Wilkinson telling the story of Hank Dussard, an American who inherits an olive farm in France. Olives are knocked down by the wind, and women and children who have softer hands are then hired to pick them up. But instead, Hank sends for chimpanzees, who he attempts to keep secret from the townspeople. Locals are outraged that the monkeys could potentially take work away from them, you know, thus monkeys go home, and they scheme to ruin Hank's potentially profitable enterprise. A cousin, who's not actually a cousin, named Yolande, threatens to claim half the farm as part of her inheritance, and this is part of the scheme to ruin Hank's endeavor. 
and using an interested local girl named Maria and his monkeys, Hank is able to reclaim full rights to the property. And Yolande, the so-called cousin, is scared away, thinking the chimps are ghosts and fleas. Father Sylvain, played by Maurice Chevalier, who was a movie star with a career going back to the late 20s, aids Hank in his enterprise and encourages a romance with Maria. And just as it seems the Americans' efforts in France may fail, Father Sylvain admonishes the townspeople into helping Hank pick his olives. Dean Jones starred as Hank Dussard and Yvette Mumia as Maria Rizzarou. Ron Miller produced and Andrew V. McLaglen directed the screenplay written by Maurice Trombregel. And the chimpanzees, including Dinky, did cause anxiety amongst some of the actors. Dean Jones said while filming, It's a funny picture if you like working with monkeys who will steal every scene. Very hostile creatures, monkeys. And Jones was at one point bitten on the leg by one of the animals. Another actress admitted that the monkeys scare her to death. Toward the film's conclusion, we see three female chimpanzees beginning to pick up olives. However, Maria, who thinks she's being helpful, delivers a male chimpanzee, played by Dinky, who distracts the workers. And Dinky's friends, Margot, Charlie, and Elmer, also played in Monkeys Go Home. Filming of the movie took place entirely on the studio backlot in Burbank, California, on a street initially designed by art director Marvin Aubrey Davis for the Zorro TV series. John Mainsbridge explained, We took the old Zorro street and made a French street out of it. And just to get a little character out of the street, we brought in dirt and mounted one end of it so the street wasn't all level, unquote. A Bay Newton fig tree was brought in along with 23 olive trees, creating their own grove. And the tree and farmhouse were imported from California's Imperial Valley. 800 color photographs were referenced in order to create the fictional town of San Pruist in Pegustan. And the set was later adapted for the treasure of San Bosco Reef and Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo. Monkeys Go Home was released on February 2nd, 1967 to tepid reviews. Leaning positive, funny elements were noted as bolstering a ridiculous scenario and mediocre script. Walt Disney Productions, post-Walt's passing in December 1966, initially had a bright future ahead with a slate of pictures for 1967, which also included The Nomobile and The Jungle Book and re-releases of films like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and The Shaggy Dog kept the company's revenues robust. Author John G. West opined that this feature, quote, never really gets off the ground, and Edward Baer, biographer of Maurice Chevalier, described the film as, quote, distinctly unmemorable. Monkeys Go Home does include some charming and funny scenes, but it probably could have benefited from on-location shooting, either in the south of France or even in the Napa Valley, filling in for the south of France. And this is something that the studio at this time was both was capable of both logistically and financially. Ron Miller believed, quote, that from this hilarious situation, we feel that we have achieved the Disney aim, solid family entertainment, unquote. And this was Maurice Chevalier's last live-action film role. Now, in terms of Dinky, after these movies, he then appeared, or he was you know, enlisted to appear in Tarzan and the Great River, a 1967 release with actor Mike Henry as Tarzan. 
However, Dinky ended up biting Mike Henry on the face, requiring the actor to get 20 stitches. He was 10 years old, Dinky, and after the biting incident was initially placed in the Los Angeles Zoo. Dick Van Dyke remembered his friend and visited him who was in a large circular pen outside, and he called Dinky's name and the ch chimp ran over. He could tell that Dinky clearly wanted out and, quote, the whole visit upset me. He eventually said, quote, I had to walk away. I couldn't look back. And as a result of the biting incident, Dinky was euthanized. Sources for this segment include Dick Van Dyke, My Lucky Life in and Out of Show Business by Dick Van Dyke, Walt Disney and Live Action Film by John G. West, the Disney Films by Leonard Moulton, and various other books, websites, and articles. For my second segment, I will discuss voice actor Candy Candido. And Candy Candido was born in New Orleans, Louisiana on December 25th, 1913. And he learned to play the bass violin from his uncle. And so then he, in his youth, he had a variety of jobs in show business, including playing for big bands like Jimmy Dorsey's and voicing various roles on radio, small roles in film, the most prominent probably being the Angry Apple Tree in 1939's The Wizard of Oz. He also briefly served as Bud Abbott's sidekick after Lou Costello passed on. And throughout his life, Candido was known as a friendly man who loved children and did not drink or gamble. And he was known as very sweet, and he loved telling people about his wife and children. His one vice is he did consume 16 cigars a day. And he said, quote, God gifted me with a voice range of six and a half octaves. And again, he did love interacting with children and crowds. And so from May to October, he would travel through a wide variety of states, including Louisiana, Florida, Minnesota, and Illinois, working as a goodwill ambassador at different county and state fairs. Um, in particular, there's a lot of newspaper articles that survive of him working as a goodwill ambassador at the county fair in Allentown, Pennsylvania from 1962 to 1994, where he would delight children with different voices and animal noises. And in this role, he would do things like escort VIPs through the fairgrounds and serve as an announcer and presenter at different shows. Now, based off of Candido's recollection, his initial role voicing a character for Disney was as Diablo the Raven, in 1959, Sleeping Beauty. And he came to the studio working with casting director Jack Lavin after Candido saw an advertisement that Walt Disney was looking for different voices. He told Lavin that he played the bass fiddle and could sing songs in funny voices and make a wide variety of animal noises and, and other sound effects. And so Candido remembered the interaction going something like this when asked if he could do a raven. Candido said, what do you want, the male or the female? Lavin said, you mean there's two? Sure, the female does all the talking. The male never does anything. Let's hear it, Candy. So from the top of my voice, I let out a balk. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So Lavin said, let's go see the producer. And then they went to go to meet producer Walt Pfeffer. But Candido said, I found out later that Walt Pfeffer was no more a producer than you and I. Walt Pfeffer's daddy loaned Walt some money, so he made Walt Pfeffer a producer. So Candy remembered, Walt Pfeffer says, Candy, let me hear it. So again, balk, and Candida remembered that Pfeffer took off his glasses, he wiped them with his handkerchief, he looked at me and said, I'll buy that. 
So Candida remembered in 1986, so I was the raven in Sleeping Beauty. I stood on the bad queen's shoulder and threw lightning at everybody, and now I'm an evil bat. And this initial role led to 33 years at the studio. Now, Candido did also voice the Indian chief in 1953's Peter Pan, but as Sleeping Beauty went through a very long production, it is possible that he voiced Diablo first. Again, you know, Peter Pan came out in 1953 and Sleeping Beauty in 1959, but other voice actors remembered working on Sleeping Beauty in some cases from 1953 to 57. So Diablo, Diablo came about when animator Mark Davis, who animated the villain Maleficent, came across a problem, as at first Maleficent was a character who did not interact in a frame with other characters, but stood and made speeches. Davis said, I created the raven for her. He not only saved her at times in the film, but also saved us with her long, windy passages. And so Diablo gives us a point of visual interest and someone for Maleficent to interact with. Candido also provided some voices for Maleficent's goons, who you may recall I mentioned in episode one when discussing story artist Bill Peet. Per animator Andrea Steja, quote, Sleeping Beauty's goons have the roots in paintings by Dutch painter Hieronymus Bosch. When I was a kid, there was nothing scarier than to look at his pictures depicting visions of hell. Bosch filled his canvas with evil creatures whose anatomy was comprised of various animals and human parts, unquote. So a lot of paintings you'll see on History Channel specials and things like that discussing demons and the underworld are paintings by Bosch, who was alive from 1450 to 1516. And Bill, Pete, and others studied these paintings when designing the goons, and they were designed to be comical but not terrifying, although I always find them extremely creepy especially the idea of them sneaking into homes and slinking through the countryside, peeking into cribs when they're looking for Princess Aurora. So most of this animation was done by John Lounsbury with the design completed by Milt Call. And upon the film's release, the Atlanta Constitution described them as, quote, courtiers are about as laughably nasty a crowd of goons ever to emerge from a drawing board. Regarding working at this studio, Candido said, It's the greatest studio in the world. They're wonderful people to work for. Nobody ever called Walt Mr. Disney. It was always, Hi, Walt. Hi, Joe. And his experience is consistent with other voice actors and those who had roles in live-action films, finding the studio a very friendly, uh, clean, welcoming place to work. And Candido further described his talent, saying, I do cows and pigs, though I've never been on a farm. He said, we have a storyboard on which there are stills of the characters done in pencil. From those, we decide how we're going to do the voices. And Candido also enjoyed going on promotional tours for features, either releases of features or re-releases of features, such as a 1965 re-release of Cinderella and a release of 1963's Son of Flubber. During a 1965 Cinderella re-release, he went on tour, a publicity tour, with Clarence Nash and animator Jack Bailey. Clarence Nash is best well-known for voicing Donald Duck. And Candido said, he's nearly 70. He was the first one to do Donald Duck. And Walt Disney said, no one else will ever do that voice until he dies, unquote. On this particular tour, the trio would appear in theaters and visit hospitals and orphanages drawing pictures, doing things like Donald Duck 
and making you know all kinds of animal noises which the children always loved on the tour for son of flubber in 1963 he toured with nash and stars annette funicello tommy kirk as well as dick winslow winslow being the leader of the disneyland band and an accordion player and nash and candido were quite a pair in terms of making noises which would entertain children as they could basically make any animal noise and of course nash could always imitate donald duck throughout his life candido wore a golden mickey mouse cuff he wore excuse me a golden mickey mouse watch a 17 jewel hamilton wristwatch as well as golden mickey mouse cufflinks which were gifts from the studio he also voiced captain crocodile in 1973's robin hood and these char- this character was designed based off of sketches by Ken Anderson and were animated by Milk Call. And the crocodile's role is relatively limited. He announces an archery tournament, and it was a little bit involved in the fight that follows, with many of these scenes also animated by Art Stevens. And then Candido also voiced a lot of other smaller roles. Um, he reported various sea creatures in The Little Mermaid, The Trees and Babes in Toyland, Horn Guards in The Black Cauldron, Barks for 101 Dalmatians, Meows for the Aristocats. Um, and, you know, per his telling, he voiced various characters, even if it was just, you know, one little animal noise in one scene for over 33 years. But because of the kind of role he played, unless he kept very detailed archives or the studio kept a detailed list of the work he did, we probably will never know the full extent of his work. But he was always happy to get a call from the studio. And one of his favorite roles was voicing Fidget in The Great Mouse Detective, released in 1986. And The Great Mouse Detective, released in 1986, is based on the book Basil of Baker Street by Eve Titus, a sort of Sherlock Holmes-type story told from the perspective of animals. And Candido voiced Fidget, the bat and sidekick of the film's villain, Professor Radigan. Professor Radigan was voiced by Vincent Price. And Candido said in 1989 that this was a favorite character of his, and that, quote, I do all the dirty work, kidnapping, stealing, unquote. Fidget was designed by Glenn Keane and animated by Kathy Zlinski, Phil Young, and Matthew O'Callaghan. He's a bat wearing a dark gray cap, a scarf, and has a peg leg and sharp, menacing teeth. And I remember finding him quite creepy and really frightening when I saw this movie as a small child. It took about two years from the initial voice test and character design for the job to be completed. And Candido remembered recording one sequence where Fidget is reading a list of orders for Radigan. He remembered, when we finally did it, they made me talk so you couldn't understand me. Roy Disney heard it and didn't like it. He wanted to understand everything, unquote. So re-recording took about one hour, but Candido said, thank God I'm a one-take guy. According to the publicity material from the film, the challenge was to design a character which is, quote, frightening, but not overly grotesque, scary, yet comic, unquote. And in crafting this film, Candido believed that Roy O. Disney had a crucial role in the ongoing success of the Walt Disney Company and restoring animation to its former glory. Roy, who was the son and nephew of the company's co-founders, returned to the company in 1984 as vice chairman. Candido also credited Bernie Mattinson, who he remembered Bernie read Vincent Price's lines in I Respond. 
the tape speed was increased after recording to create the sound of Fidget's voice. And Candido said that working on The Great Mouse Detective reminded him of the old days at Disney when, quote, every movement counts in the movie. And he really enjoyed animated movies in particular because he liked how these characters move like real people. And at the drawing tables, that's exactly how the animators treat them to the extent of having mirrors where they'll make the gestures themselves in order to capture certain expressions effectively. And I think Candido's final thoughts on The Great Mouse Detective are especially interesting. He said, you know, the bat didn't die at the end and neither did Radigan, so they might make a sequel. I hope they do anyway. Candy Candido passed away on May 19, 1999, and he was survived by his wife of 66 years. He had four children, eight grandchildren, seven great-grandchildren, and two great-great-grandchildren. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Walt's Oasis. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Again, please follow the podcast on Instagram on my personal page at Spencer Wright. 19070 and the show page at Walt Oasis, where I will post pictures of subjects discussed. And feel free to email me at waltoasis at gmail.com with any feedback, questions, or episode suggestions. Episode suggestions are always welcome. Thank you for listening.